I started to realize after going down the rabbit hole for quite some time that focusing on all of this fighting and the destruction, everything, it's a never ending battle. So the way to solve this problem is to focus on healing at the individual level. Because collectively, if we can all heal and radiate love and and be able to be functional citizens where we can make good decisions and, and actively, um, you know, be active in our governments and what's going on in, in society, then collectively we're going to see dramatic change. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm Chris, your host, just back from Spain. Pardon my jet lag. Still got, still have this chest cold. I don't know what's going on. It's been a month, so sorry for the voice. And also sorry to those of you who uh, are waiting for the next episode of Talking Out My Ass, the sub-podcast that I do for subscribers only who... Um, you know, have uh, coughed up 20 bucks or three bucks, depending on what your your subscription level is. Uh, mainly, that's just to sort of show that you actually do want to hear these stories uh, from my traveling days, because I hate to impose that sort of thing on anybody who hasn't uh, expressly, <laughs> you know, shown an interest. I don't want to be that guy at the bar who won't stop talking about himself. Um, anyway, so, uh, back from Spain and getting back in the swing of things, um, had an interesting time in Spain. I was mainly there dealing with bureaucracy, uh, stuff involving an apartment we own there and, uh, banks and, you know, residency and, you know, all sorts of paperwork crap that I was dealing with. And, um, but a couple friends of mine turned out to be in town. So it was really nice to spend some time with them and of course, catch up with, uh, you know, friends who live there in Barcelona. Um, and one of the people who was in town was, um, Mistress Kyla Yee, who, uh, is a dominatrix that I interviewed on this podcast way back when she's, I think the, the second or third episode that I posted and, uh, she was in town. So, I hung out with her a bit and had some interesting conversations, and I mentioned um, Sierra Lynch, the the humiliatrix who was on the podcast recently. So that launched us into a a conversation about some of the strange corners of of uh, sex work. And uh, Kyla told me something that I didn't know. <clears throat> you know, I was going off on how strange it is that people would call or, you know, hook up online with uh, a stranger who would um, humiliate them for money. Why did I say humiliate them? Humiliate them for money. Um, And Kyla told me that there are hotlines for dudes who get off on being ignored. Now, that has got to be the best business model ever. A hotline for people who like to be ignored. So you call this number and I guess 
you know, it sounds like someone answers the phone and then they just <laughs> they just don't say anything. They just fucking ignore you. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. It reminds me of that uh, Monty Python skit from years ago from the TV show where the guy goes to a clinic and he walks into a room and gets hit in the head with a hammer and he's like, "Ow, why would you do that?" And he said, "Well, this was physical abuse." He said, "No, I wanted to be insulted." And they, "Oh, so sorry. That's just down the down the hall. That's, you know, room C." So, you know, I don't know, whatever gets you off, I guess. But um yeah, if anybody wants to pay me a hundred bucks to ignore them, you know, just uh, you know, you can make a, a donation. <laughs> nice segue, a donation. Uh, if you love the podcast and you've got some money burning a hole in your pocket, um, you're more than welcome to support the podcast by making a donation uh, through PayPal. Uh, I'm at uh, at chrisryanphd.com. You'll see a donation button there. And uh, another way you can help the podcast is by a going through our portal, the the Amazon link you'll see on the right sidebar at the website. Uh, just click through that to Amazon.com, and then we get a small percentage of anything that you uh, spend at Amazon on that visit. So you have to remember to go back each visit, you know, through ChrisRyanPhD.com, and then um, you know, we'll get a, a cut of whatever you spend at Amazon. So those are two, well, that's one way of helping the podcast that doesn't cost you any money. And the other way, uh, making a straight up donation does cost you money, but, um, uh, it's, uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, still haven't really worked out the perfect, uh, model to monetize this thing. <clears throat> I was looking at, at doing some stuff, uh, recently, that I I decided I, I wasn't that comfortable with. Um, so I'm just trying to find a way that isn't a pain in the ass for you and doesn't make me feel like a schmuck. <clears throat> Maybe there is no way. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I'm still looking for it. And of course, if you want to uh, buy any t-shirts or anything, that's cool. Um, my mom runs that out of the garage. So she'll be Mrs. Ryan will be happy to send you a t-shirt. You can get those at chrisryanphd.com as well. So thanks to Basin and Range for that funky intro music. And thanks to Carsey Blanton, as always, for Smoke Alarm. You'll hear the whole thing at the end of the podcast, as always. And uh, what else should I mention to you? Uh, Cotango, if you're interested in uh, ethical non-monogamy, check out cotango.com. That's with a K, K-O-T-A-N-G-O.com. It's a... Um, sort of a community site for people who are interested in alternative models of, uh, of intimate relationships that, um, you know, don't involve lying and cheating and sneaking around. So that's Cotango.com. And if you want to talk about the podcast uh, or Sex at Dawn or anything else involving me and my work, there's a subreddit, Sex at Dawn, one word altogether. Uh, oh, no, no, it's not. It's tangentially speaking one word altogether. <clears throat> I get mixed up on these one word altogether things. Tangentially speaking altogether, um, no space. You'll see that on Reddit. And there are a bunch of people on there talking about their favorite episodes and uh, how the podcast has affected their their lives and so on and so forth. And I drop in and, uh, you know, uh, leave my two cents worth in there as well. So it's a pretty cool place um, to hang out and, and talk about the things that come up in the podcast if you're interested in doing that. This week's episode is with the amazing, wonderful, beautiful, brilliant, 
uh, Amber Lyon. You've heard her on Rogan's podcast. You've heard her on Duncan's podcast. Um, she's she's all over the place. I think she was on the Young Turks recently. Um, she's she's uh, made a big splash in her arrival in the sort of alternative media world. Amber was a television correspondent, an investigative journalist at CNN, as you'll hear. And she saw the light, or maybe she saw the darkness. I'm not sure how you would, uh, what the best way to frame that is. But she saw something that she didn't like. And um, she's been on a quest to figure shit out on her own since then, since leaving CNN and uh, the sort of uh, mainstream corporate world and the mainstream view of reality. And as you'll hear, she's come up with some pretty interesting things along the way. I'm really happy that that I'm actually able to bring you this episode because I was afraid I'd lost it forever. We, when I got to Amber's place, she had a whole sort of studio set up. So we used her equipment. And then afterwards, I took the card and stuck it in my computer and transferred the file and then gave her back her card. And we were all running around and had to go places. In fact, we recorded this on 9-11. And she was moving out of her apartment the next morning. Uh, so she obviously had a ton of stuff to do. And we were meeting later that evening to go hear Duncan Trussell do stand-up comedy in a strip club in L.A. on 9-11, which was, I have to say, an amazing experience. Um, Duncan, all right, this was probably the worst possible place for for stand-up comedy. It, It was horrible. I mean, you're in a strip club. People are not there to hear comics, right? That's not why you go to a strip club. Um, they've got a stage set up. So they'd have the girls like women dancing and stuff. And then they'd interrupt and they'd bring up comics one after another. And it was like watching the gladiators go into the lions. It was just horrible. It was a meat grinder. People were going up there trying to like do their bits. And like half the people in the place were completely ignoring them, laughing, talking at the bar. They didn't even have a spotlight. So it's like a guy standing on a stage in the dark with a microphone trying to, you know, hold your attention. Impossible task. Um, And, you know, one after another, they just went up and bombed and bombed and bombed. But it wasn't for lack of material. It was just the setting was absolutely not conducive to uh, a comedy show. So finally, Duncan goes up. And he has, he says, I won't try to redo his material, but it's really good stuff. That was just observational of like this situation. So it obviously wasn't something he'd used previously. And, um, and then he said, um, I'd like to uh, have a moment of silence for the victims of 9-11. And of course, half the people in the place didn't even hear him say that. So they kept laughing and talking. And and then Duncan went off yelling and screaming at these inconsiderate assholes at the bar who were being disrespectful of the victims of 9-11, of the mothers and the children of the victims. And he, he completely went crazy. And he was the only comic of about eight, I think, who performed that night who got the attention of the entire room. 
<laughs> yeah. So my admiration for Duncan, which was already beyond substantial, uh, doubled that night. <laughs> that, that guy is not afraid to take a chance. All right. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Um, Amber's fascinating. As I said, she's very smart, very interesting, and has had uh, a hell of a life so far. And she's really just getting started. I've got some very good episodes coming up in the next few weeks, so definitely keep uh, keep your eye on the podcast. Uh, Rick Doblin, the head of MAPS, uh, I've, I've already interviewed him. These are all in the can. John Gowdy, who's an anthropologist slash economist who uh, is expert on hunter-gatherer economics. Um, really interesting stuff and gets into fascinating questions of, of what is human nature, wh- what are the, the sort of deepest, most congruent ways uh, for dealing with one another, for dealing with questions of inequality and uh, generosity versus hoarding behavior and all the sorts of things that, um, you know, that sort of get at the, the very basics of human life. Um, and then I interviewed a buddy of mine the other uh, the last week, I guess it was, or the week before, who's a fireman uh, here in Portland. Really interesting guy, fascinating personal story um, of his own life and and his his uh, road from childhood to where he is now, and also some very interesting insights on um, you know the perspective that one gains from being the first to arrive at the scene of an auto accident, you know, time after time after time, which is, uh, you know, as you can imagine, pretty heavy, uh, interesting existential stuff. Um, anyway, so that's Justin DeRider. That's coming up soon, too. So stay tuned to the podcast. Tell your friends, spread the word, and uh, keep the faith. Thanks. Uh, before I go, uh, one more thing. I just realized I, I got distracted in my story about Duncan at 9-11. The reason I'm I'm really happy I still have this episode is that the file was corrupted when I transferred it. And uh, so when I finally got home and started looking into putting this together, I realized um, the file was messed up. So uh, I had to hope that Amber still had it. And she did, but she's traveling all over the world, so it took her a while to be able to upload it for me and get it back to me. Um, so anyway, this one was pulled out of the fire. Thanks to Amber for doing that. And uh, you know, I know that's kind of chaotic when you're in a in a jungle in Costa Rica to to uh, you know upload a file to to Dropbox, but she did, and so we have it. And uh, wonderful. Enjoy Amber. Bye. I'm here with Amber Lyon in her beautiful, chaotic, messy apartment. Hey, I'm moving. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> I swear it's it's normally spotless. I'm just uh, uh, heading out the door yeah. tomorrow. You know, I don't trust people with spotless apartments. I, I spend too much. I, I don't either. And I spend too much of my time in the spirit world and and creating things to really be 100% present here and, and right. 100% organized, which is... yeah. Well, that's the thing. 100%. I mean, how can you be organized if your life is alive, right? Mm Because things are changing constantly. And I think there's an old line from Wordsworth who said, we we murder to dissect. 
right? And you think about that in terms of science and relationships and so many things. Like to really pin it down, you got to kill it first, right? Otherwise, it's squirming around and moving and changing. I'm not sure if this really relates to organizing one's apartment, but I, it's my <laughs> excuse for why my apartment is not as neat and clean and why I don't trust people whose apartments are perfectly organized. I mean, come on. How do you live in that? And, and sometimes there's a, a little bit of beauty to chaos. A lot of beauty mm. in chaos, fractals and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. There's a book, somebody... Now, see, the, this podcast is called Tangentially Speaking because this is the whole this is the whole point. We just like go off on what <laughs> like forget about focus. All right, I like so, it. Somebody gave me a book that is microphotography of grains of sand, and it. Do you know that grains of sand are like little pieces of coral and little tiny microscopic seashells? They're different colors, striped. All they're like they're like snowflakes. There no two are alike. It's amazing. This book is just incredible. I don't remember what it's called, but if people Google micro shots of sand, they'll find it. Someone first sent it to me as like an online thing, and then I started buying the book for all my friends. Incredible. I don't, what the hell does that have to do with anything, Amber? <laughs> it has to do with the fact that the earth is an incredible place. And if you, I mean, have you looked that's at uh, an ice it. molecule? They have that photo, this photo that's going around the internet. It's it's incredible when you are able to see how beautiful earth is at the molecular level. Yeah. And um, it really makes you appreciate the beauty of nature. Just the small little details. Every little detail right. is taken care of, unlike in this apartment. <laughs> to see the universe in a grain of sand, eternity in an instant. You know what I'm saying there? Mm -hmm. William Blake. That's, he, I don't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, could, were we able to cleanse the doors of perception, we would see eternity in an instant and the universe in a grain of sand. That's why Aldous Huxley named his book, The Doors of Perception his book about mescaline. Mm -hmm. And that's why The Doors named their band The Doors because of Huxley's book. So it all goes back to sand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Morrison goes right to sand, all right? So uh, for the people who don't know who you are, um, which are fewer and fewer these days, because you're sort of taking the world by storm, aren't you? In... I've definitely been conducting some mind-blowing work lately. Yeah, I've seen your name coming up all over the place and your new website, uh, resetme.com. Uh, Reset.me. Reset.me. Uh, it's a really nice website. It's very slick and easy to look at and well-organized. And, of course, the content is fantastic. Tell people what you're doing, what I, I've been researching plant medicines, uh, specifically focusing on, on psychedelics to cure physical and mental health ailments. Right. And, and so I've literally been tripping around the world <laughs> using submersion journalism to investigate the plants. I, I have been sampling some of the most powerful psychedelics on earth and uh, researching native use of these substances and the medicinal use of these substances because I really feel like right now we're facing a mental health crisis. Yeah. And uh, these plants are here to heal us. And they have been for thousands of years before they were outlawed by chimps in the government. Mm. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I my focus now is using my journalism, submersion journalism, to expose the truth and let people right. know there there is hope. You're a turncoat, aren't you? 
A little bit, yeah. <laughs> you were, uh, now I know you worked at CNN yes. and you ran into some weirdness there where they they were messing with your stories and suppressing some stuff that you were, uh, are you free to talk about that or do you have For any? For sure. Oh, yeah, okay. it's all part of my awakening process, which has been really beautiful when I look at it objectively. And yeah. I, I was caught in the matrix and I, I grew up inside the heart of the matrix in middle America where um, we were told many, fed many propaganda, poisonous foods, and and I, I hadn't really woken up to the reality of the, the universe and the U.S. government hmm. really until I, I started working for CNN hmm. and started traveling overseas, covering conflicts, and starting to realize that the United States was supporting brutal dictators, was causing much of the conflict that was going on overseas, and the media was complicit uh, including CNN. Yeah. And while I was at CNN, I uh, had gone to great lengths to produce a documentary on the brutal regime in Bahrain and how they were oppressing the majority of their citizens. And when I got back to the U.S. to air that documentary, CNN International never aired it. And my crew and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then through a deep throat style, <laughs> people meeting me in parking garage investigation, we found out CNN was getting paid by the Bahrain regime and had been getting paid by them and other pro-U.S. regimes for years to produce positive documentaries that made these dictators look like progressive democratic leaders. Yeah. And, and so it was, it was rough. And I, I was battling about, you know, whether or not to come forward or just to ignore it and continue to use these mainstream networks as a platform. And at the end of the day, I, I just felt like I carried this secret and I, I knew it was on my life's path to expose it. Mm, how and did you know that? You just know I've always trusted my gut. I believe your intuition is um, all of us have, whether you believe in spirits or not, I've kind of now do believe in them <laughs> through my investigative journalism and using these plant medicines. I yeah. believe that we all have spirits surrounding us. Um, and often those spirits are trying to kind of tell us what to do and, and, and set us on our right path. And that's right. your intuition when you hear that little voice in your head or you get that gut feeling. And I've always been really good at following my gut feeling and, it was keeping me up at night, and I, I kept trying to ignore it. <laughs> mm. And my intuition was telling me, you have to expose this because you'll never be able to live with yourself knowing that an entire nation of people is being screwed over not only by the U.S. government, but now by these media outlets. And someone needs to stand up for them finally. Mm. And and so I just decided that I was going to be the one to to be on their side and let them know that, that they were supported and the truth was supported. Yeah. That's a tough move. You're and you're a lot younger than me. What, how old are you? If me, I'm thirty one. Thirty one. Uh -huh. Yeah, you're a baby, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but it's very generational, you know, because I I came of age in the sort of aftermath of the Vietnam War. As a little kid, I was aware of the end of the Vietnam War and Nixon, and so there was a lot of distrust of government and a lot of skepticism uh, about the you know defenders of freedom and mm -hmm. all that bullshit, right? And then. My first year in college was the year Reagan was elected. So while I was in college, there was the Nicaraguan, you know, the death squads in El Salvador and Honduras and Nicaragua and the whole Iran-Contra. There's all this stuff. So it was very much in the air. But then there was a lull and it sort of seemed like 
what happened was that the media got bought up by all these conglomerates and they got their hands around the neck of the media. And of course, newspapers start dying out, right? So thousands of reporters are losing their jobs. And from my perspective, having lived through those different eras, the silence was deafening. Mm-hmm. You know, the the build up to the Iraq wars and even like right now, today, today's 9-11, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know when I'll air this in a w- couple of weeks, probably. But here we are. It's 9-11, right? Last night, Obama's on TV explaining why we're going to go bomb people in the Middle East again. I, I have to say anytime it, you have to, you cannot let hit history repeat itself. And History has shown in the past when the U.S. has used a terrorist organization as an excuse to bomb. Usually documents show that somewhere along the line, the U.S. created that terrorist organization. So I'm not buying any of this ISIS stuff. None of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also interesting. I I saw an analysis. I don't know where it was, but they were talking about uh, how ISIS is so much more media savvy than Al Qaeda. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, because they're getting help from the CIA. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was going to say. Yeah. And most journalists won't say it because they call it speculation. But I'm sorry, I have to be logical. Let's go based on history. Nine times out of 10 in history, anytime we bombed or attacked anything in excuse for uh, a terrorist or because of a terrorist organization, the U.S. caused that terrorist or created that terrorist organization somewhere uh, along the line. And so when I saw that uh, the video came out about that journalist, I thought that was really unfortunate. But one of the first, my gut, one of my first instincts was, I don't know about this ISIS thing. It, it seems too fabricated. The whole thing just just is, yeah. is a red flag. And so I, I'm not saying whether it's true or not. I'm saying we need to look at what's happened in history and then go forward with a bit of skepticism and think, hmm, what is this group being leveraged to do? They're being used as an excuse to just throw bombs again all over Iraq. So wouldn't that have been an ingenious plan to create this group to then have an excuse to bomb Iraq with without the president needing permission from Congress or permission from the public? Yeah. It just all seems like it's just fallen into place a little too easily. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the whole uh, science of, of public manipulation has gotten to the point now where they're savvy enough to make these things both true and not true. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like the Gulf of Tonkin incident the, where President Johnson went on television and said the Vietnamese had um, fired upon our ship in the Gulf of Tonkin and that's why we had to attack North Vietnam. Turns out that was absolutely false. They never shot at that ship. Guys on the ship testified later. Nobody ever shot at us. We don't know what happened. That was just a bald-faced lie, right? But it seems that now in the last 20, 30 years... The what I think happened is that in the Reagan administration uh, was the first time that advertising and politics married. That was where mm. where advertising not only ran, running campaigns, but but fabricating the reality of the political uh, world of what's happening. That where you get that that really. Do you know the history of of advertising? The first sort of godfather of, of modern advertising was a guy named Edward Bernays. Do you know about him? Yes, all too well. He, he 
uh, he actually convinced women that it was part, wasn't he the one? A part yeah, of the you've come women's a long way. lib revolution to smoke cigarettes. Benson and Woo-hoo. Hedges, you've come a long way, baby. You'll yeah. sound really sexy at yeah. those protests. <laughs> well, know? you know, he also... He's a genius. He, Unfortunately, he was working for, for the dark side. The CIA. Yeah. He, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, he was involved in the overthrow of... Um, Oh, uh, no, I'm forgetting his name. The president, the freely elected president of Guatemala, Arbenz, in 1956. The CIA brought him in as a consultant to help them shape the media coverage uh, and to prepare for them overthrowing the freely democratically elected government of Guatemala because this guy Arbenz was semi-socialist and wanted to shift money. First, he wanted to kick United Fruit Company out of the country, mm. now known as... Uh, uh, Chiquita and Dole, and they're all the same company. He wanted to kick them out of the country and wanted to use the money from selling the fruit to you know, bring water and sewage to the people of the country. Can't have that. So they brought this guy in to shape it. They called him a communist. They uh, picked the successor, took care of this guy, killed him. Same thing they did in Chile and they've done all over the world. Um, Anyway, what am I talking about? Well, and they planted journalists oh. and media outlets. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that goes back Operation to Hearst. Mockingbird, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and I think it's still, I think it's probable it's still going on today. I don't have documents proving that, but there were people I worked with over the years who I'm just like, there's no way that person's a journalist. They're not even making decisions based on journalism. Yeah. And I, I, I've actually had journalists, while I was at CNN, I had a journalist contact me on behalf of the State Department to correct my story. Right. So a journalist who's supposed to be a watchdog for the State Department is instead a lapdog calling other journalists within the organization and pressuring them to change their stories to be uh, more favorable to the State Department. Yeah. And, and that actually that happened on two occasions while I was at CNN. Once when I was investigating the nuclear industry, which is to me that's it's just what's going on. You don't even want to read about it because yeah. it, it will keep you up at night. And um, also, uh, when I was dealing with revolutions that were happening overseas and the U.S. government uh, aiding and abetting these dictators. Mm. Yeah. Just to close out the Edward Bernays thing, do you know mm. who his uncle was? No. Sigmund Freud. Interesting. Wow. Goes right back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Uncle Siggy. <laughs> Uncle Sig Sig. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we both agree that uh, the U.S. government has its hands in all sorts of nefarious plots around mm-hmm. the world. I mean, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are are young. They're in their 20s and, and early 30s probably. So uh, some of this stuff, and it's not covered in, in history classes, right? Like very, very few history classes will cover the fact that uh, the Shah of Iran, for example, was put in place by the United States and the British because the guy in there before didn't want to sell oil at the price they wanted. So they killed him, installed this guy. The CIA taught his uh, secret police how to torture people, mm-hmm. right? We've got a school of the Americas. I think it's still running in Georgia, mm-hmm. where they fly officers in from all over the world and teach them how to murder and torture their own civilians and then send them home. Anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, then uh, that, of course, caused the revolt with mm-hmm. the, with the uh, what's his name, the Ayatollah. Yeah. So that whole thing, as you said, you know, we create these terrorist organizations that we then, you know, use as as an excuse to go and occupy and bomb and so on. We also create 
governments, mm-hmm. like the, the government of Iran, for example, you know, or uh, what's his name who just died in Guatemala, Chavez. Mm-hmm. You know, we create these these revolutionary scenarios that then are used as an excuse for fighting. Yeah, that's the, the new way to warfare. It's revolution warfare. I, I got bamboozled because I was doing a documentary on a lot of these revolutions that I later realized many of the lead activists had been trained by the State Department in the U.S. And I I got to the point, Chris, where I just, I couldn't, I was being used as a pawn, a puppet. I I couldn't figure out what was real, what wasn't. And it got really confusing and frustrating as an investigative journalist. And I started to realize, after going down the rabbit hole for quite some time, that focusing on all of this fighting and the destruction and everything, it's a never-ending battle. Right. So the way to solve this problem is to focus on healing at the individual level. Because collectively, if we can all heal and radiate love and, and be able to be functional c- citizens where we can make good decisions and, and actively um, you know, be active in our governments and what's going on in, in society, then collectively we're going to see dramatic change. And, and that's a very empowering message and a message I've been given by these plants that at first I was like, how, how can you really change the world by just healing at the individual level? That seems so simple. But often the most profound concepts are the most simple. Mm. And, and so that's why now I'm focusing on a for sure 100% um, uh, investigations and, and stories on, on these plant medicines and on modalities and technologies we can use to heal. Because for me, that is 100% for sure, something that can create a solution and change the world before focusing on all of the CIA and all of these ops and everything. You just went down the rabbit hole of insanity. And it it was nearly impossible as a journalist to navigate it. Even these protests I covered. Sometimes I'd be at protests out in LA and I was looking around and I was like, half of these protesters are informants or or agents. And and I, you know, it just got to the point where it's enough to drive me mad. And which it almost did, yeah. <laughs> you know. Thank you. Thankfully, I had these plants to resuscitate me. And so, let's go back to you. You said you're from Middle America. Where? What part of Middle America? St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, that's real middle. Yeah, yeah that's smack dab <laughs> in the middle. And then, where'd you go to college? Uh, in Missouri as in well. Missouri. Columbia, Missouri. Yeah, University so it's not of Missouri. Missouri. Is it Missouri or Missouri? <laughs> it depends on where you are. If you're in the cities, it's Missouri. If you're out in the uh, in the sticks, it's Missouri. Are you a farm girl? So I was a little bit of both. I, I grew up in the suburbs outside of You've St. Got Louis. Nice shoulders. Oh, thanks. <laughs> 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 I got those from Missouri too. Those you know? are Missouri shoulders. There are they. <laughs> um, yeah, I've always just had like um, even whether I work out or not, I just have a lot of um, muscle. I was an athlete as as a kid. Yeah. And, uh, played softball with these shoulders and ran cross country. It was a cheerleader. All, all oh, you were a stuff. cheerleader. Yeah. Oh, man, yeah. that's heavy. That's really heavy. <laughs> yeah, I, well, so I, just, I was real... only one for one year, and then I couldn't stand it anymore. So. Oh, really? Was that another rabbit hole? Was that like a precursor for the, to your CNN experience? No, it just <laughs> I just felt like, what? I'm sitting here on the sidelines. Like, I want to be in the game. Oh, you know? I gotcha. And so, uh, right. yeah, so I... I left and joined cross country where we ran in circles for hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. At least you were doing something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you studied journalism? Studied journalism in college. And I was really fortunate at the University of Missouri, uh, Columbia, they would hand me professional equipment and they actually have a real TV station. So at a really young mm. age, I, I was 
not in class often, but I was out in the field uh, conducting investigations and working on my camera skills and editing. And, oh, all right. Yeah. So you knew, like, out of high school, that's what you wanted to do. I knew. I knew at a really young age. Why? Like, how as a how child, did you know? What What motivated you for that? I, I've just had this passion inside of me to stand up for the little guy, and I've I've been given more explanation by these plants um, <laughs> as to, because they do show you your purpose in life. And mm. one of the reasons I chose to live this life was to fight for Mother Earth and to help expand consciousness. So I literally came here and was put in this body known as Amber, uh, my spirit, to fight to expand consciousness, to push for the consciousness movement and help protect Mother Earth. And so I always had this burning passion to to change things since I was a really little kid. And I and I felt the best way to do so, I saw how much journalism could promote change through all these PBS documentaries I used to watch and nature documentaries. And so I knew at a really young age that, that that's what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to take these messages and broadcast them to the world to, mm. to try to wake people up. And how did you get your gig at CNN? Oh, that was a long time coming up. So I, I left college and I went and worked in Arizona where I covered a lot of drug cartel, which is ironic. Mm. I was, did a lot of, went out with the DEA and all these marijuana busts, saw them storming in. So this is a, like, an internship or a paid job? This is a paid job at NBC in Tucson, Arizona. Oh, so right out of college. Pretty nice start, huh? It was crazy because I went from it's middle America. because of the shoulders, you know that, yeah. right? So <laughs> yeah. those, those are really photogenic shoulders. They're like, yeah, we're going to, uh, we want to, just because her shoulders will get us more viewers. <laughs> hey, get, get that girl with the shoulders on there. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was so weird. You know, now that I know about how more how the universe works and how m- nothing is just a mistake, I understand why I got that job because I was, I was thrown from middle America right into the middle of the drug war for two years because I did the overnight shift. So I would see the, wow. the terrorism on behalf of the DEA uh, going into these houses, throwing in these sound bombs oh, and flash man. grenades and sending robots in and SWAT teams to bust someone with a barrel of good old marijuana, a plant that grows naturally out of earth. And they would terrorize the children and the families. And I was on bust after bust after bust. And so now I know why I had that job because now I understand the reality of the drug war. And um, and so I went from Arizona. I lived down in Central America for a while to learn Spanish. What part? In uh, Guatemala. In Costa Rica for a while, too. In mm-hmm. what part of Guatemala? In Antigua? Uh, Quetzaltenango. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've been there. Sure. Oh, really? Sure, I sure. don't meet many people who know. where It's a small mountain town. Te- well, it's, it's the second the largest border, city. Right? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, Quetzaltenango. And, and I remember there's a big market in Chichicastenango. Chichicastenango, yes. <laughs> I went. I took yeah. the bus there one day. I was. Yeah. Um, I remember that bus ride, too, because I, there was a couple Mayan women behind me, and all of a sudden I felt these hands touching my hair. Oh, you've got that blonde hair. Yeah, yeah I love that. They were just smiling and laughing, yeah. and they just loved the blonde hair. And I, for to them, I was some kind of alien. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I was in Guatemala for uh, three or four months, and uh, I've told this story elsewhere, so I won't tell the whole thing, but I was in Tikal on top of the Jaguar Temple, number four, and um, I had taken some acid with my girlfriend, uh, timed so that we would uh, be peaking when the sun set and the full moon rose over the jungle. (laughs) And uh, while I was up there... um, after the sun had set, the moon rose, and then it went behind this bank of clouds. And these people we were with uh, decided to go back to the campground. And so I held the flashlight for them to go down this big ladder because we were way up on this ledge. 
And um, then they got down. I said, okay, see you later. And I turned and a scorpion stung my foot. And luckily I didn't jump, you know, but I, I was like, oh, what's that? And I sh- shone the light and there's this scorpion running up the wall. And then there's this Guatemalan guy and my girlfriend who spoke Spanish asked him if, uh, if they were dangerous. And he said, hay uh, muertos. Ooh, there, there are, are deaths. deaths. Yeah. And I understood that. <laughs> so yeah. if anyone wants to hear the rest of that story, there's on my website. There's, I told it on a podcast called Risk. Let me see. You uh, You still have both feet, which is a good sign, and you're alive. So we know you survived. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, someone survived or, you know, who knows? I, I, yeah. I've always considered that the end of, of my... How can I say this? Everything after that was credit. Everything after that was gravy. That mm. that was the night my one life ended, you know, because I really thought I was dying. And, and I had this whole drawn out experience. And of course, I'm tripping, right? So it was a full moon and Tikal, one of the most powerful places I've ever been. So it was pretty intense. But anyway, why, why am I sidetracking us on that? Uh, uh, Guatemala. Guatemala. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I spent some time there. I, I went over the Guatemala-Mexico border with immigrants coming into the U.S. Um, oh, wow. And so it was, it was exciting. You're ballsy. Like, you were right in there. Just curious. And I, I don't have a lot of fear. And if I do have fear, I usually face it uh, because I look at it as resistance. And so the more fear I have on a story, the more I'm like, oh, shit, I got to cover gotta that one. Got to do it. It's <laughs> yeah. a good story. Yeah. And uh, and huh. so I went with these groups of immigrants crossing the Guatemala-Mexico border, which is actually more dangerous than the U.S.-Mexico border. And there's hmm. a lot more human rights abuses at the hands of the Mexican government, which is hypocritical because yeah. they criticize the U.S. for abuses. And so I went with these groups of immigrants as, as they were rafting across the river and, and walking up through Mexico to get to the U.S. and past trees filled with women's underwear and bras because all these, um, they call them ratas. They're uh, robbers waiting to rob these immigrants and they rape the women. And so I, I was there with these women and we, they, the men were amazing. They would walk around us and protect us like in this circle of protection. And at night when we slept in these safe houses, the men, about a hundred of them, how incredible was this? Like it, it was so endearing. I, I cried at the time they actually slept in front of the door to the women's room. So if anyone were to come in to try to harm the women, they'd have to go through 100 men. And these guys, what I knew would take a bullet for me. And I just developed such a compassion for these immigrants that when I was working in Arizona, the Border Patrol was calling aliens yeah. to try to make them seem not even human. Yeah. And so it was really beautiful for me just journalistically and as a human being to understand more of their story and, and their struggles coming into the U.S. Was that your... Was that where something flipped in you? Was that the experience? Like when you were doing the drug stuff in Arizona, did you still sort of believe the narrative? I did. I was like, oh, well, they need to get that marijuana off the streets. Right. Because I I was highly anti-drug because I had been fed so much of the DEA Kool-Aid, the D.A.R.E. program, everything growing up. And um, a story I don't often tell, but I, I was actually suspended from school in middle school for marijuana, even though I'd never smoked it in my life. There was an autistic kid in one of my classes who was, uh, he started selling marijuana to get attention and I felt bad for him and I helped him conceal it in the back of a marker. I wasn't thinking that I'd get in trouble for trafficking at age 12, but that um, when he got caught later on in the day with the marker, they asked him everything that had happened throughout the day and he's like, oh yeah, this, and Amber put the marijuana bag in the back of this marker for me and so I ended up getting suspended from school, which was really devastating for like two weeks and um, huh. thrown in this like 
school for all the kids who were doing drugs. And so ever since then, I developed a huge and intense hate for all drugs. Oh. I wanted nothing to do with them. And I couldn't even smell the, the smell of marijuana smoke would ignite that anger inside me. Wow. So I was on the DEA side. I was like, yeah, I hate these stupid drugs, you know, which is so interesting considering my 180 uh, in opinion and career. Switch, yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah, really. Unbelievable. How's your family feel about your changes? Uh, at first, my, my mother called me crying and was like, oh my God, it's so sad. You're becoming a drug addict. <laughs> and, and that was, now that I know the truth. And so I've always had a strong conviction. I know, I know I'm on my right path. I know that these are plant medicines, not drugs. So I, I could easily laugh it off and... And, uh, and now they, they've done the research, they've gone to reset.me. They're, I, I'd say on the cusp of trying ayahuasca. They're I, maybe six months out from going down to the jungle. Uh, because for them, as for most people in the country, prescription medications have failed. And, and so they're turning to other options and hmm. reading more and more about, about the miraculous benefits of a lot of these plant medicines. Do they have... Uh, um pain conditions or something mm -hmm. yeah my dad has a um a pain in his spine which western medicine just can't figure out what it is and it's horrific he's a very active person it's kept him in bed for a couple years made him oh, like no. almost borderline i mean horrible depression because he he can't move yeah, and um oddly enough when he was a kid he had spinal meningitis at age five and he never processed the trauma from that of from nearly dying from being stuck in a hospital sterile hospital room with guys in pyvex suits coming in and that's terrifying for a kid and yeah. i believe now that i understand energies and trauma that the trauma from that incident is stored in his body ironically it's manifesting itself as as back pain and it's yeah. caused him anxiety his whole life and we've taken out had he been in a native culture he would have gone and done ayahuasca the shaman would have cleared him right away after he got out of the hospital of that trauma and he'd be fine the rest of his life instead because Western mm. medicine has, has cut out these plants, he's been suffering. And so I, I witnessed someone, my last trip down to Peru, I witnessed someone with horrific back uh, pain being cured during an ayahuasca ceremony. And the ayahuasca woke me up in the ceremony and said, watch this. It was a psychic surgery, uh, you know, metaphysical operation that was going on. It said, watch this. This will be used one day to heal your dad. I want to heal your dad. And so I, I witnessed it. And it was really incredible. And the individual who was being healed on the ayahuasca is doesn't have back pain anymore. Not to say it will work for everybody, but it's great at purging all of these traumas out of our body that yeah. so many of us are carrying yeah. that manifest as physical and mental illness. Especially in back pain. Mm -hmm. I, you know, have you ever heard of uh, Dr. John Sarno? No. Oh, you got to get a copy of his book. It, it's called Mind Over Back Pain. It's like six bucks on Amazon, whatever. It's a little thing. Um, he's He used to be the head of, um, a, I think, a spinal surgery at Columbia uh, University, teaches at Columbia University. If he, I think he's still alive. But he, he wrote a couple of books. Um, so he, he comes from sort of like your trajectory in a way. He comes from a very sort of straight, you know, middle America medical background. You do surgery to fix things because everything's mechanical and, you know, the body's just a machine and rah, 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 all that stuff, right? And then he had some experiences that just blew his mind open and he looked at it again and what he realized is that 
I think he says like 80 to 90% of all the cases of back pain that he sees are cases of psychological trauma Mm -hmm. expressing itself in points of the back that are in fact um, mechanically weak because the the pain is very clever. It doesn't express itself in a part of the body that's completely intact. It finds the weak point and that's where it expresses itself. So when you do the x-rays or whatever and you say, oh yeah, look, there's a herniated disc right where you have this pain. So we've got to go in and you know, blah, blah, blah. And what he says is, but wait a minute, they're not looking at x-rays of people who don't have back pain, which have just as many cases of herniated disc as people who do have back pain, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, this isn't, a, it, it corresponds, but it's not the cause of the back pain. Plenty of people have herniated discs and have zero back pain. So what he says is he, he has these sessions with people where he explains this, and he says most of them, after just one session, the back pain goes away because they're learning to think, wait a minute, this is about stress. This is about mm-hmm. anger. This is because I'm not happy in my job. This is because of that and that. And as soon as they do that, pressure starts to release like from a balloon or something and the back pain goes away. So there's, what I guess the reason I'm saying this is there is a very highly esteemed you know, back surgeon who has come to exactly the same conclusion that you're talking about with the plant medicine he's i'm sure he's never done ayahuasca right but it's exactly the same thing right the the stresses of the mind and the spirit manifest in the body my wife casilda who's a shaman psychiatrist very i wish she were here to meet her to yeah meet her. i know i, I want to meet her yeah she's she's great but she always talks about how the skin is the biography of the body of the mind like she looks at someone's skin and she she'll tell you everything about them like how they sleep what kind of food they eat their exercise how stressed they are all this stuff she just like reads it in their skin yeah very very interesting when you start putting these things together suddenly everything's interrelated right everything manifests in different ways everything's connected your mind how can you think your mind is not connected to your body but western all of western medicine has forgotten this it's not even mentioned in the in the books in medical school and that's i i wanted it's really strange because i wanted to be i used to want to be a doctor at some point too Mm. but i nothing just felt right about western medicine and and sitting in a in a classroom for eight years or whatever, and 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 now I understand it because intuitively I knew that the ignorance of the mind body connection really negates a lot of Western medicine, and and it's like these yeah. surgeons who keep trying to cut into my dad's back. He he's had two separate surgeries now, and nothing's worked because they're not even taught at any point during med school that it could be. Oh wait a minute, this guy has really bad anxiety. And he also had spinal meningitis as a kid, which caused a ton of trauma. And maybe that's what's causing his pain, but they they ignore that. And that's why it's been really exciting for me to witness these healers, especially down in the Amazon, because they do believe that everything is connected. Right, right. You know, it's so interesting. Uh, Lots of things jump out at me from what you just said. First, I want to tell you the first person I ever had on this podcast was Dr. Andrew Weil. Okay. You know, you know yes, he, he is. is a friend of the plant medicines. Well, I, I yeah. like him because he's actually come out and admitted the benefits of psychedelics, whereas many oh. of these mainstreamers have forgotten that psychedelics caught them to where they were. He's never that. Yeah, I agree with you. I I admire him tremendously. He's become a close friend over the years. But even before I knew him personally, what I admired so much about him was that 
you know, like you were you were saying in your own trajectory, he knew what was real and he stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, it got him fired from jobs. You know, he got fired from the National Institutes of Health, the prime job after, mm-hmm. you know, Harvard medical degree, uh, residency at UMass, or no, Mass General, you know, like the best, the best, the best, the best, and best job. And But what did he do? He, this is early 70s, I think, maybe late 60s. He started, he was looking at the the research um, showing that marijuana was terrible for people and really, you know, um, uh, detrimental to cognitive functioning and all that. And he saw like, well, but all this research is about mathematical, like how how quickly people can do complex math problems and stuff when they're stoned, right? And he said, well, methodologically, this doesn't make sense. A, because these are all naive people. They, they've never been high before. So you're not giving them a chance to like get used to being high and then comparing them, which is the way you would do it scientifically. Mm-hmm. Also, People who get high don't sit around doing math problems generally, right? <laughs> they listen to music, yeah. they look at art, they, you know, massage, make love, whatever. So he said, well, let, let's measure their ability to distinguish subtle tonal changes in sound or in color and like how sensitive they are to touch and things like that. Let's measure some of the things people are naturally drawn to do when they're high. And of course, what did he find? their capacities increased, mm-hmm. right? So that's, I mean, any other field of research, that would have been obvious. But because it was drugs, it's all set up to... So what I'm saying is science is very much like journalism. It's mm-hmm. set up to find the results that the status quo, that pr- pr- uh, protect the status quo. I can't speak. Yeah, pr- that and protect that's the status quo. Yeah. Anecdotes are some of the best signs we have going now because they're not being funded. Most of them aren't being funded yeah. by, um, you know, those with ill intent. Or I, I think Vice News just did a study finding that the majority of the anti-marijuana experts, even this one Harvard expert as well, are being paid by the prescription pain yeah, I saw that. pill yeah. industry. That's a, a dirty industry yeah and, um, it's yeah. just like the you know the anti-climate change people are being paid by the oil companies yeah. it's like come on and, and now as a you know i'm sort of a scientist myself and mm-hmm. and it hurts me to admit that this is true just like you're an investigative journalist it's got to hurt you to to acknowledge that so much journalism is bullshit it's yeah, propaganda yes. because journalism is a sacred activity just like science is a sacred mm-hmm. activity they're both supposed to be about finding the truth and being fearless and and not being paid off right but something's happening we're at this tipping point in the world where these seemingly reliable sources of information are not reliable anymore and what's really interesting from a political perspective is i think most people are coming to the conclusion that they're not reliable Mm -hmm. which is kind of tragic because science and journalism are two noble professions. Yeah, and journalism, even the word journalism has been tainted by Fox News. And, right. And so that's even more devastating. It's like, I, I can barely even use that word anymore. What does it even mean anymore? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and same with, with science. Sure. I mean, it's just, whenever I'm posting a study now on Reset.me, I have to go... And, oh, the, the results look great, but I have to go and now investigate who's funding. Yeah. <laughs> who's behind writing writing the study? And, and it just gets to be, you just have to do a lot of research. But luckily, something I've noticed are these 
early 20-somethings, they are spot on. Like they don't even trust anything. <laughs> I have to post all sources for, for everything in my articles because they don't, they don't trust journalism, which is actually a good thing because it shows that they're doing their research. And so I found it's almost easier on my site to just say, here's the study, read it. I'm not even going to summarize it. <laughs> but what, what do you think is going to happen now? Because nobody's got time to go back and, and check the sources of everything that they read in the day, yeah. right? If you're going to be a well-informed person, you know, we're not all experts on China and Russia and, you know, the, yeah. the Congo. So how, what, we need journalists. We need somebody who we can trust. They're like, okay, this person has checked this shit out. They know what they're talking about. If we lose that, what's, what's going to happen? Well, I think what, the, what I tell people to do is trust the journalist, not the outlet. So um. I've noticed that these outlets, uh, many of them have people working for them who aren't journalists, and they're there for other reasons. Uh-huh. But you may have a couple really good journalists working at, at the New York Times, but maybe some of them aren't really journalists. And so if you just trust the whole paper and everything you read, you're not going to get an accurate picture of what's happening. And sometimes they mm. kind of bury investigations, and they bury the good journalism. Yeah. And so if you find a journalist, you know who's telling the truth by what they're covering. And so just trust the journalist and follow, you know, set your list of journalists you're following for the news versus the whole outlet because it's really hard to find any outlet that hasn't been infiltrated. And, or, or won't be if it becomes successful enough to exactly. attract attention. That's the first yeah. thing that happens. It becomes successful enough. It gets a percentage of it gets bought by Fox, right? <laughs> you right. know, or or General AOL Electric. Or, yeah. yeah, and so. Um, so who do you trust? What what journalists come to mind for you? Do you like Glenn Greenwald? Of course, yeah, He's I'm friends amazing. with Glenn. Oh, are you? Uh, Glenn actually helped me expose the CNN story. I went to him right oh, away because really? I knew I could trust him, and I knew no matter what the Guardian said about any part of that story, he would put an accurate story online because i could trust him was this before snowden this was before snowden oh wow and uh and so so i went to him right away and i just was that might be why snowden went to him maybe he saw how glenn helped you that maybe because glenn did yeah he's a serious guy job and he really helped make everything make sense about cnn and and in the piece um he exposed that cnn was getting bought off by all of these regimes worldwide to produce this positive content. And he, I, I just like him as a human being and I can trust him. I know Glenn will go to his grave to tell the truth. Yeah. And uh, so I trust him. I also trust uh, Abby Martin, mm-hmm. who works at RT. She uh, is a dear friend of mine as well. We've kind of formed like a bond. <laughs> All the journalists that are telling the truth right now, like we've got each other's back. Mm. Uh, Nar Muharwish, who works for mm. Mint Press mm. News. Um, she's very trustworthy. She exposed that... Um, uh, a, a lot of Syria, her her outlet, Mint Press, um, exposed that a lot of what was happening in Syria, um, you know, potentially could have a connection to Saudi Arabia and the U.S. And um, as well as uh, Kevin Gastola, uh, he covers a lot of national security. Uh, in the realm of um, plant medicines, there's not a lot of journalists because outlets haven't been buying this content, which is why I created Reset.me is to, one of our other goals is to create the field of consciousness plant medicine journalism and give mm. it credibility and a budget so that journalists can, right now there are so much is focused on destruction and war because that's where all the money is. Yeah. So these freelance journalists are flying off to war zones 
to cover this these unending wars that don't it doesn't ever resolve anything because that's where the money is so if i can take some of that money and put it into consciousness to healing to plant medicines these journalists are you kidding me they don't want to be in those war zones a lot of them and a lot of them need healing that's why they're attracted to journalism to stand up for the little guy because they had some kind of trauma in their life it's a, it's a common denominator amongst journalists and so if we can create funds to pull their attention away from that and onto solutions, then then they're going to come. And so that's what I'm trying to do with uh, Reset.me. You were talking earlier about em- embedded journalism. Is that the phrase you used? Submersion journalism. Submersion. It's the Sub- most pure form. You don't take anyone's word for it. I learned at a young age not to trust authority at a very young age. And, In and St. So, Louis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a tough lesson. What do you say to people who say, well, then you lose your objectivity? If you're if you're taking these, if you're taking ayahuasca in Peru, then you're no longer qualified to discuss this. Well, I, I think there is no such thing as objectivity. Ah. And, and journalism as a profession, like if you look at the muckrakers in the 1920s, 1930s, Nellie Bly, one of, one of my favorites, if you have a time to research her work, um, they are, they, that's what they did. They dove into the story to find the truth and then come out and tell the public, I went in this objectively, objectively, which I did the whole drug situation. I was explaining to you earlier how I was anti-drug. I guess I went more toward the side of the DEA. Right. And, and you kind of enter a story objectively with a clear mind and then you go in and you live it and then you tell people what you experience. Right. And so I, with ayahuasca, yeah, I experienced ayahuasca, but I what I don't understand are these journalists reporting on it who've never even tried it. How can you <laughs> how the hell can you figure out what this is about yeah. or even write about it without experiencing it? Experiencing is part of writing yeah. it. And the journalists who don't experience it, I don't trust them because it's like how can you cover something that you don't even know about? It's funny, isn't it? How how drugs is and I hate the word drugs, right? Cuz you know, you're talking about methamphetamines and you're talking about cocaine and you're talking about ayahuasca and ibogaine. How do you call them all drugs? They're all so such different experiences, appeal to different people for different reasons, but psychedelics in particular uh seem to be this it's this sort of set aside area where if you have experienced it, you're no longer qualified to talk about it. But I can't think of any other example to that. You know, like if you're selling yourself as a marketing yourself as an expert on China mm. and you're running around bragging that you've never been to China and don't exactly. speak a word of Chinese, That's a great analogy. you're full of shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, you can't talk to me about drugs. You can't, you know, drug czar, whatever the fuck your name is talking about drugs. And you're saying you've never done drugs. You know who that reminds me of? Uh, Kellogg, who was um, who wrote all these books about how to raise children and mm-hmm. he, about sexuality, and he bragged that he had never had sex with his wife, and he's the guy who was advising people in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century to sew little boys' foreskins closed so they wouldn't masturbate and to put acid in little girls' clitorises so they wouldn't oh touch gosh. themselves. What the fuck kind of expert is this? This is a <laughs> sick fuck who should be in prison not you know on a stage advocating you know his crazy policies anyway sorry for that little rant (laughs) that little tangent that was the most interesting absurd tangent i feel like i need to go wash my mind out (laughs) this is kellogg by the way of kellogg cornflakes yeah cornflakes when you you read he's gonna be watching out for their best interests (laughs) with the acid on the clitoris yeah exactly sprinkle a little acid on your cornflakes um 
Jeremy Scahill. Have you had any? Oh yeah, Jeremy. I I like his work. Yeah, I think mm. he's he's also pretty. Uh, I mean, I I think maybe this is a a microcosm of this larger social change that's happening, right? Because as you say, you can't trust outlets. Mm-hmm. Once they become commercial enterprises on a large scale, then they're subject to all sorts of nefarious uh, influence. But individually, it's true. You see a particular person. Uh, what's his name? Matt Taibbi at Rolling. Mm-hmm. Used to be at Rolling Stone. Yeah, for sure. I love his He's stuff on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because trust him. I think that the key is you can only trust people who don't give a fuck. Exactly. They're willing to lose it all, as you did. Walk away from it all if it's bullshit. And you can tell who those people are. And it might change over time, but generally I think someone's either like that or they're not. You hear it in the writing. You yeah. Know? And and yeah. often and those are the journalists who aren't objective. They're telling it like it is. They're exactly. just saying the truth. Like, exactly. Well, their truth. And you can take it or leave it, they, but at least exactly. you can trust them as a source. Yeah. And and I think objective is is giving people a, a false truth because you're you're putting equal weight to both sides, right? And sometimes both sides don't deserve equal weight, and and so you're it's just confusing for people, yeah. And it's dumbing it down, yeah. you know. So yeah, so um, I I I've just always liked submersion journalism and coming out and just saying, okay, guys, here's what happened. I went in. <laughs> went into the trenches right and i came out and and this is this is what happened you and know? do you know who does that someone who goes into another world particularly someone who goes into another world and takes a sacred plant mm-hmm. and then comes back is a shaman yeah so in a way what you're doing and and a lot of these people that we're talking about are doing is shamanism they're going into another world studying that world, learning what they can from the spirits or the beings or whatever they find in that world. And then they're coming back and reporting to us what they found that will help us to be healthier. Exactly. And I I keep getting these downloads when I take these plant medicines. And so I try to bring them back to the public. I've had some just downloads on things to tell people to try to hurry up and shift this great awakening and into to full gear. And so... Um, and so I guess it is a little like shamanism. I never really thought of it about it like that, but but yeah, because that's what I'm doing. I'm reporting everything that I'm seeing in this other dimension. And a shaman has to be someone who is willing to lose everything, right? Shamans yeah. aren't rich. They're they're not like doctors in our society. Shamans generally are not rich. They're generally not even particularly um, celebrated in a way mm. because they're weird. They often live sort of outside of the village by themselves. And uh, they're needed and they're respected, but they're not movie stars mm-hmm. in shamanic societies. That's hmm, like my life in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> but they've got great shoulders, these shamans. <laughs> you know, when we're talking about Glenn Greenwald, who I, I yeah. agree with you, I respect him immensely. One of the things I, I think about sometimes, because, you know, a lot of my work's about sexuality and, you know, uh, the politics of sexuality and and the bias in our views of sexuality as opposed to what the science actually says. Um, it struck me that he's gay mm. and how that may have informed his uh, his uh, willingness to... Because he had a, a very lucrative job on Wall Street, as I recall. I don't remember exactly what he did, but I remember when he got out of school, he went to Wall Street. He was making a shit ton of money. He's a big-time lawyer, Big-time lawyer, yeah, like someone else we know. Uh, and he said, fuck this, and yeah. he left, right? Now, who walks away from six-figure salary on Wall Street in their 20s? 
Very few people are going to do that. Mm. But I always thought, in his case, being gay, you to come out uh, as a gay person takes a lot of courage. You're willing to lose it all. You're willing to lose the friendships that are comfortable but maybe not real. You're willing to, to deal with family members who might reject you because they don't understand. You're willing to deal with a lot of shit to be true to yourself, right? So I'm thinking of you with these women crossing the border from Guatemala, you who formerly were you know, on the side of the DEA busting down the doors, now you're on the other side of this story. Was that a coming out for you? It was, it, because I, I I would notice that the DEA and the Border Patrol would call these people uh, illegal aliens all the time. And that's why I actually left to go down there, because it, it started bothering me after a while. And even that term, I just, we used it all the time. And I was just like, these are not aliens. <laughs> why do we keep calling human beings aliens? And when I got to go down and I got to see their struggles firsthand, I, I realized there's a lot more to the story than was being reported. And and I felt a lot of empathy for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing. They're good. I mean, there are a lot of good people down there. And getting back to what we were talking about earlier, a lot of what's happening now with these waves of, of refugees coming in from Central America goes right back to the 80s. Reagan administration mm-hmm. policies and all the bullshit that was going on then. Listen, I know uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. We're we're where are we? We're now about an hour, um, and I'm getting some weird sound in my microphone. Are you are you hearing that? Like, um, a, like a popping bubble sound? Yeah, it doesn't. Are you matter. okay? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, we're going to see our friend Duncan tonight. You're coming to this, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm excited. Duncan always puts on a good show. I don't know what it is about Duncan. He can just say anything, and it makes me laugh. Yeah, his raspy lesbian voice. What's he yeah. call it? His, his something lesbian rasp. Uh, but we're going to see Duncan Trussell and some other people perform uh, 9-11 at a strip club. Doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> I couldn't think of a better way <laughs> to spend this day, exactly. this night. <laughs> exactly. Listen, thank you for doing this. Thank uh, you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure yeah, speaking with you. Yeah, I hope we can do it again. I know you're going to be on the road a lot, but let's try to cross paths again sometime. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I keep heading back to the jungle. It keeps sucking me down there like a magnet just to learn more. Yeah. And and so I hope to continue the shamanism and, and bring you back some uh, exciting knowledge that I get from the plants. Good. I appreciate it. Thanks. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Think about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Send it for a headstone Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a bird. 
shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time? Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we ever know Sit for a headstone Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.